Welcome to Woman's Zone, connecting women through their stories. Since lockdown, the Woman's Zone book club, usually held in the Women's Library at Artscape, has gone virtual via Zoom meetings. To mark the 16 days of activism against domestic violence, we dedicated the December book club to victims of femicide and gender-based violence. Our two speakers were Nahama Brody, author of many books, but most recently of Femicide in South Africa, and Tracy Going, who wrote her own story, a very chilling story, in a book called Brutal Legacy, a Memoir. Nahama's book was the result of nearly seven years of research, first for a master's, then a PhD on news coverage, or lack of it, on femicide in South Africa. And Tracy asked her first how she did this extensive research. I work a lot with archives. Nancy mentioned some of my earlier books, the Joburg book and the Cape Town book. So since I started working in books, which was around about 2006, and I can only remember that date because I was heavily pregnant with my second child, when I took on a book project for a publisher that was supposed to be six months um, and turned into kind of two years. So in between kind of trying to write my first book, I had a, a second baby and all those sorts of things. And because of my work with history books, I had quite a lot of experience working with different types of archives, including trying to access news archives, because newspaper stories can be tremendously rich sources of information if you know what to look for. And because I'm a journalist, there's a natural affinity and I enjoy reading through news stories. They tell me quite a lot of a story and more often than what's just on the page. But I also know from experience that many of our country's news archives are not in the greatest physical state. Even, you know, 10 years ago, if you tried to go into the basement of one of the major newspaper publishers in South Africa and dig through the last hundred years of newspapers, you probably wouldn't be able to, um, or they wouldn't have been put into any order, or they would have been rotting somewhere, or, I mean, and in fact, this extends to the SABC. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the SABC's radio archives in the early 2000s were, well, culled to a large extent. So huge amounts of kind of tape recordings were just trashed. But those that were preserved were converted to what was the new technology at the time, if you remember, which was, was micro discs. So they, inst- I don't know if you remember, the SABC went through this whole process of installing all these jazzy new studios that had micro discs or were they mini discs? I mean, this is, you know, which players and recorders, which of course the technology is completely defunct. Nobody uses it. They were like the Betamax of CD type recordings. So many of those recordings were also lost. So the state of archives overall is pretty poor. But what I was fortunate in that was there is a, there are a couple of news clipping services that exist online. So knowing that the physical state of archives was not something I would probably be able to achieve anything meaningful looking through, I went and used digital resources and digital archives, but not just one, multiple different types of sources, and then would go digging back through them to try and see what I could find. Now, you start your book, Femicide in South Africa, with a story of you at a literary festival, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and there is a man, and he is halfway through the window. You'd heard the scratch, scratch sound, and um, and then eventually you went to explore, and you, you set the scene for us. You're in a room. Um, you don't have your glasses with you. You can't see. It's dark. You're not familiar with the space, and you then walk in, and here he is halfway through the, through the window, and 
that sort of set the scene for me because that's almost one of our biggest fears as women, isn't it? Yeah. I sometimes laugh at myself because I write, as Nancy said, sort of crime stories as well. I write fiction. And when you're writing crime fiction, you have to imagine a terrifying situation. And unfortunately, on more than one occasion, I've subsequently been in situations that were very similar to ones that I described in my books and thought, oh my God, you were way too much on the mark. This was horrible. You know, it's horrible. Kind of how your imagination is accurate. It's still obviously way worse living through that moment. It wasn't the first time that I've been in a situation where I felt threatened, but that I think was probably the most threatened I've ever felt in a single situation and where I didn't know how events were going to turn out. And I think when I look at sort of your book and your own story, you write about that moment of knowing that you were safe when, when your neighbors, yes. and that feeling, I understand that feeling so completely because in the middle of the night when I couldn't see, and I was in this tiny cottage with a man halfway through my window and knowing that even though I'm literally a trained fighter, I don't have a great chance of success when I'm half blind at three in the morning against a man because he's physically going to be stronger than me and many other factors. Hearing somebody next door say to me, what's wrong? We're coming. At that moment, I knew how things were going to turn out and I knew that I would be okay because up until that time, I didn't know. And I think that was the strangest part was that uncertainty of what's going to happen next. And you realize that it's, it's pretty much all up to you. And both of us, maybe because also we, you more than me, but also have a, a broadcasting background, used one of our strengths to great effect, which was to call for help very loudly. But um, go through the whole process where you, you're assessing the entire situation and you're thinking, okay, how best to get out of this? Because you know you yeah. can't run away because you've got nowhere to run. Yeah, I was intrigued by that process as well. What we do is we negotiate, we work out, is it time to fight? Is it time for flight? Is it time to freeze? And you screamed and, and of course, Rohana ran in, um, the two of them ran in and, and saved the day. So as a reader, I read that introduction and I thought, oh my goodness, the because it, it just leaves your eyes cold. You think, oh, well, the book really can't get worse than that. And of course, then it does. It gets far worse than that. At the end, we'll talk about the hope, though. Not that it's, you know, it's all doom and gloom. Um, I didn't get that feeling from reading your book. I felt I did feel hopeful toward the end of it. So you you come in and you define the word femicide and you, you talk us through it, the difference between femicide and female homicide. So will you describe it for us? Yeah. So this is still, this is actually an ongoing discussion and one that, I try and engage with, with uh, researchers and academics around the world. Femicide or the concept of female homicide of a woman being murdered isn't new. Men have been killing women as long as they've been killing men. It's part and parcel of our society. But what happened uh, about 45 years ago was academics or researchers, in fact, it was a South African, Diana Russell, who passed away quite recently, who put forward at a conference in Belgium the idea of something called femicide, where we acknowledge that the victim's gender wasn't incidental to her death. And the discussion that that's... Because she is a woman. She's murdered. Or that, or, that, or that her being a woman contributed to her being murdered. So, and I think that this is where the discussion is. Diana Russell's definition was a woman who's murdered by a man because she's a woman. For me, when I start to study crime in society, and particularly in South Africa, is I'm not convinced that most perpetrators intentionally or, you know, understand that they're killing the victim because she's female. But we have to then broaden that scope to understand that our society in itself encourages and enables a level of violence against women. 
And that is why we have to understand that femicide is a distinct thing. The second thing is that the way women are murdered is different to the way men are murdered. Whether or not the perpetrator is thinking, I'm killing her because she's a woman, but the way women experience violence is different to the way men uh, inflict and experience violence. And it is important for us to understand those if we want to develop solutions to sort of improve the situation. And what I'm trying to work towards now, in fact, in my academic writing, is to discuss the idea of femicide where we include all female homicides as femicides, irrespective of whether we know who the perpetrator was or what his motive was, but at the same time that we exclude or we separate out certain categories. So, for example, the murder of infant females, for me, is not doesn't have the same crime profile as the murder of women who are aged 14 years or older. You know, and the same as the murder of kind of female children. Whereas Diana Russell included every female that was killed because of her gender as part of a femicide. I don't, which is more in line with what the Medical Research Council suggests we should look at. And the reasons for this are, it can sometimes sound not clinical, but it can sometimes sound a little bit blunt, like we're trying to divide women into categories. But what we do see is that with females, Once a a female is old enough to either start engaging in or she's perceived as being available to engage in relationships with men, her risk profile changes. And I'm not talking about willing relationships necessarily. I'm also talking about relationships that women may not be wanting uh, or not, you know, seek out. And that's why we sort of have this in South Africa, this idea of 14 years old and older. Do they become more vulnerable over 40? Over over 14. Yes. Yeah. So, and what we found is, well, we, what other researchers who have done autopsy-based studies and previous press studies, including Lisa Vetten and researchers at the Medical Research Council, what they found is when they started looking at the profiles of the cases of women who were killed, is that from sort of around 14 and upwards, the risk of being killed by a partner, an intimate partner, or a rejected partner or a former partner is suddenly present. And that, as soon as that risk is present, or as soon as that relationship is present, the risk increases. So that's why you for me... Worded it, Nahami, you worded it yeah. in a particular way, and you said something along the lines of the greatest risk for a woman being abused or being killed was be getting into a relationship with a man. And I thought yeah. that was completely chilling. It's, it's absolutely that. I mean, that is still statistically the greatest risk for any woman is always going to be the person who she shares a bed with or shares a kitchen with or previously shared a bed with. And there are studies constantly coming out that it's not only being in the relationship, but even trying to end a relationship with somebody. In fact, the process of trying to end a relationship when a woman tries to leave a a difficult or an abusive or just any relationship is often the time when she's most vulnerable. So it is literally that where, you know, the, the risk of female children being targeted for violence is very high, but it is also high for male children. The risk of female infants or being targeted is high, but it just changes as soon as a woman is old enough to be perceived, I suppose, as a woman. Maybe that's kind of that category. As soon as she's seen by society as a woman, her she risk available. increases. Yeah. She becomes sort of available to society. Yeah, and it's terrifying. You- 
There's a case um, that happened, there's a murder that happened here in Cape Town last week. A mother was murdered and it seems that her son and his friend were involved in it. And one of the, I, I was talking to somebody from one of the prosecutors the other day and, and she was saying that they immediately suspected the son simply because, well, one of the reasons was because she had been targeted in her face. And I saw in your book as well, you talk about that, you know, when someone knows the perpetrator, they targeted in the face and in the head area, stabbed or shot. Um, and if you don't know the perpetrator, very often it's elsewhere on the body. And I thought that was very interesting. Why, why does that happen? All right. So just quickly, in a, the second biggest risk category after an intimate partner, and that could include, like I said, a rejected or a former partner, are family members. This is for women. In fact, most people who are murdered are murdered by somebody that they know. We're still working on improving the kind of data we have about homicide in general. But so for women, the second biggest risk category after your ex-husband or ex-boyfriend or is um, a son, a grandson, a cousin, uh, a nephew. And again, it's, it's this really quite chilling concept of these people who are intimate in your personal space, who are in your house with you. And again, when I said earlier, this is why we say femicide has unique characteristics that aren't the same in a, a male homicide, is that you often feel, and when I read through accounts of how women are killed, you feel a very strong sense of kind of a personal hatred against the victim, which is expressed through really unnecessary violence against the victim during the commission of the homicide. And this is particularly noticeable in uh, the use of firearms, where the majority of women who are killed by firearms are killed by their intimate partners, they are mostly the intimate partners own, it's a legal firearm. These aren't illegal weapons. And the majority of those women are shot in the face, usually a single gunshot. So, you know, nobody's messing about here. And you do really get a sense when you read through case upon case upon case, what it looks like when a person who is close to the victim decides to take their life. It's not done in an abstract way. It's quite deliberate. And the violence of it is... I suppose when you read lots of cases, eventually, well, I switch off because you can't become too involved in it because it would be overwhelming. But there are moments when sometimes I would read court testimonies uh, in addition to newspaper articles. And it's unimaginable. I mean, I can read the words on paper, but I can't imagine them in real life. Now, the brutality and the level of violence is overwhelming. Why I think this book is so important is because so little research has been done on this issue. And even in your book, you actually explained to us where it all started. And that was going back as recent as the 1970s, where you said the first cases of, I think you called it wife battery. That was the first time we started hearing that term. And up until then, violence had never, it was a marital dispute and women victims didn't really feature much. So the 1970s is when the research started. And then, of course, black women were not included in that um, because they just didn't feature and they were considered to be part of the black-on-black -black, um, violence that uh, the apartheid government pushed forwards, you know, so much. I thought that was also fascinating that it's just the other day that yeah. it was really unimportant that women were being murdered or beaten up in their homes. So this is the other important thing to understand when we use a word like femicide is that it's not a new occurrence, but it's a new term because we understand violence differently. And our understanding of violence changes over time. It changes together with the society that we live in. So 40 something years ago, 
the idea of violence against women fitted within particular constraints and violence that took place within the home. I mean, even the term domestic violence didn't exist to mean a man beating up his wife or, a, you know, family violence. Domestic violence in the 1970s in South Africa meant terrorists. So, that, so there wasn't, you know, the fear of that kind of violence within. It was something that the doors were shut on that and you didn't discuss it really in any terms. And we can track through news reports how slowly the words that we used to describe and acknowledge that this violence existed, how those words were introduced and how our perceptions of violence slowly changed. And that came from the work of Diana Russell and various other United Nations conferences for women that happened also in the late 1970s. But initially, this was a movement very much that really only included white women. So it was only white women who experienced individual violence when they were named, whereas black women were excluded from the conversation or the violence against them was limited to discussion of, of rape, particularly in the townships. There was a massive rape panic. And we see that we kind of look today that, that the way we report violence against different people sort of persists where if you're white or let's say now if you're middle class, you get to be individualized a little bit more than if you are black or working class or poor or you live in an informal settlement. And, you know, violence becomes sort of a lot more abstracted depending on who the victim is. And these, it's important to understand where these origins come from and how the story has changed. So, you know, TV actually introduced the phrase battered woman to South Africa. There was a, a TV show called Spectrum, which anybody who's old enough will remember. In fact, I mean, I even remember it was Spectrum or Spectrum, depending, you could watch English and Afrikaans. And I can't, and now I'm going to forget the presenter's name. And the show was, one, the show was broadcast on this new idea of battered woman syndrome. I mean, this is groundbreaking television. Nobody had ever spoken about it before. Um, nobody would intervene. The police wouldn't intervene. It was all happening behind yep. closed doors. And, and it was your problem. You'd made your bed. You must lie in it. Yeah. So that then triggered recognition in the media. Suddenly there were seven or eight stories using this term, battered woman syndrome. It was raised in parliament. It was, and so an idea gathers momentum. But people are still sort of, they still struggle with this idea. And this is one of the important things about femicide in particular and violence against women in general, is that the way these stories are often represented is as if they are individual episodes. And in the media, people don't always link them to each other. So we understand that it's an individual's problem. It was your problem in your relationship. But we don't often enough understand that this is a societal problem, that in fact, this problem of violence is enabled by our society. And that's why I'm hoping, you know, the book makes the links between individual cases, but keeps showing it as, as a societal problem, not Huge just, you know, one-off. I think anyone who, who remembers watching Spectrum will also remember the introduction of the, the family murder. Suddenly that was also being covered by the media and it very much became an Afrikaans family uh, problem. And all media somehow seemed to side with the perpetrator. I think that's probably happened right up until recently, but, um, but certainly it was a case of this man had been broken, he'd lost his job um, and he'd lashed out and, and never at that point was it ever explored what level of violence was going on in the home until the time as the wife was killed, children were killed, and then he turned a gun on himself. When you read how family murders were narrated in South African press, it's kind of quite shocking to look, and this is also, the, I think, the benefit of looking back to see have we changed? How have we changed? But particularly in the 1970s and the 1980s, 
when you read stories of family killings, it was almost as if an invisible person had come and done the killings. Mm. And that the, the husband, who was usually the perpetrator, was a victim just as much as everybody else. So you would read a story that would say, terrible shooting happened in Germiston today. Mrs. So-and-so uh, you know, was found dead outside her house and her son was shot next to her. And lying on the grass, you know, two meters away was her husband, Mr. So-and-so. And it would only be another paragraph later that it would mention that in fact, Mr. So-and-so still had the gun in his hand that he had used to shoot his wife and then his son before shooting himself. So there was always this invisible perpetrator who did these terrible things to families. And as you correctly say, in the 1980s, 1970s and 1980s, it was strongly narrated as an Afrikaans problem in South Africa. And I think that's why it was picked up, not just because it was uh, common within sort of the Afrikaans, white Afrikaans speaking community of South Africa, but also because of the fact that it took out entire families, it was seen as a threat to Afrikaner nationalism, in a sense, was if you wipe out the family, you're wiping out Afrikaners, you're wiping out Afrikaner values. And Professor Nikki Falkov from Wits University has written quite extensively about the sort of the whiteness of violence in that, that context. But what was also interesting for me, though, was up until the mid-1980s, we didn't see anything about black family violence. And we didn't see anything about black family killings. They were written as if it was only this white Afrikaans problem. And were they happening? I think they were, but they just weren't being documented. Because suddenly from the mid-1980s, we see a growing number of, first of all, a growing number of black men joining the police force. And we see an increased access to firearms. Firearms, by the way, play a consistent role across all of these stories. And in the South African landscape of violence, firearms play a particular role and have a story. And um, we, we see more black men joining the police services and having access to firearms. And whether or not this is the tipping point, because I think it might be, access to firearms is a tipping point for enabling a, a much more fatal, lethal kind of violence. We start seeing reports. They're not framed as family killings in the same way as Afrikaans family killings are described, but they are family killings where the male partner, often who is a police or security officer, has access to a firearm and he kills his wife and he kills one or more of his children, tries to kill himself. And we see a growing number of these from the mid-1980s. And institutions like the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation also start to track from having no reports of black family killings before the late 80s, early 90s, to suddenly seeing a much bigger increase. And when I looked at the year that I researched for my doctoral thesis, in that year, there were only sort of one or two family killings that, could be, you know, that had white families. And the rest of them, and there were several, were all black families. But we still, as a country, don't talk about family killings as a black phenomenon. They're still in our heads. This, this narrative is still very present that it only happens to white Afrikaans people and it doesn't happen to other people, which means, again, that we don't perceive the risk. You know, so we think it's something that only happens to other people because we're told that violence is individual instead of something that affects us as a society. So before we sort of talk about what's happening in society now and what we've seen happening in this, uh, over this last year during lockdown, I just want to go back to the definition of femicide. So you've labeled, you've got intimate femicide, intimate partner femicide, and then you've got non-intimate as well. Why, uh, what is the difference between the two? I mean, obviously you know the one and you don't, but why did you sort of, you know, what does it mean to us to examine it on that level? Okay, that's a good question. So Intimate femicide tells us that the perpetrator was a current or former or rejected intimate partner of the victim. And that's the largest single category of femicides in 
every country is intimate femicides. So that could be a husband, a boyfriend, you know, a partner, a love interest that you rejected. And then obviously you could add X to, to any of those. Non-intimate femicide is a much broader category, but it's a much messier one. And that just tells us that the person wasn't an intimate partner. But within that, we get a lot of subdivisions that aren't always clearly identified. And that I think in South Africa in particular, we would benefit from doing work to sort of clearly break down. So one of those categories would be a family member or you know, a, an immediate family member, because obviously there's a difference between a close or immediate family member killing you versus a stranger in terms of how we can identify who is at risk and how to let people know that they're not imagining it when they feel threatened. And this is sort of the, the mythology around crime. I think we're taught from such an early age to be afraid of, what's it, the stranger with sweeties. You know, be aware, you know, to, to be careful of the, the bad man or, you know, dark alleys. But again, the, we don't teach people enough about the threats within our homes, and that includes intimate partners and family members. And because we're not taught about that, when women experience threats or violence from those types of people, they often feel like the mistake must be theirs. That, well, that surely that can't be true because this isn't a bad stranger. This is somebody I know really well. How could they be threatening me with violence? How could I be scared of you know, my nephew? He would never hurt me. He's a family member. If we are taught that, in fact, the much bigger threat comes from these people who are allowed into our intimate space, we might be a little more careful. And maybe people would take women seriously when they said they felt scared or they said they needed help. So as I said, that's one type of non-intimate femicide. We also get people who are killed by employees. That's uh, another category. So, And it's not as big as people think, but it, there is always that sort of the, the boogeyman in the cupboard where people are so terrified of the gardener or the domestic worker or the plumber or the carpenter or the electrician. Again, somebody that you let into your house. So what this reveals to us, it's also about these trust relationships. This is somebody I trusted enough to allow into my physical space. And this, this is a threat to me. There are also people who are murdered by community members who they may not know well, but would know in passing. People are murdered by co-workers. And then people are genuinely murdered by strangers who are opportunists and who have nothing to do with the victim, but they're just in proximity to them. And all of them fall under this kind of blanket category of non-intimate femicide, which feels messy and perhaps isn't helpful enough. And again, it's something that I think from a research perspective, we should tease out a little bit more because it might help us understand the problem a little bit better. We certainly a great starting point, your book. I, I was telling someone about your book the other day and I was telling her about how the book opened with a scene, you know, of, of you waking up and there's someone you don't know climbing through the window. And I said to her, oh, that really is one of, you know, one of our worst nightmares as women. And she said to me, she said, oh, I don't know about that. I think I was more terrified of my own husband than I was of somebody climbing through the window. I wanted to ask you about, about the media coverage, because that when I read it, I found quite intriguing. There's a part there where you talk about the details of victims' lives are very often inaccurately reported. And it sort of resonated for me because when I went through my, my own court trial many, many, many years ago, that was one of the things for me was that particularly the English media actually reported very badly or very inaccurately. And I found the Afrikaans media to be a lot more responsible in the way that they reported it. But you picked up on that, that often victims' names or ages or whatever differed, uh, depending on which report you read. Now, that tells us, that dismisses the victim, doesn't it? I think there's a number of reasons why it happens. I don't think that most reporters intentionally set out to be dismissive of victims. 
what happens is they find themselves in situations where they're expected to file a crime report quite quickly with little preparation, and they don't have access to better quality information because at that point, especially if a very violent crime has happened, they can't go and talk to a family member. They can't access somebody else who can say to them, yes, she was this old or this was her actual name. But unfortunately, they don't go and remedy it after the fact. So they don't then go and follow up and check to see, did I get this right? And so we find that mistakes that are made sort of initially get perpetuated along the kind of reporting chain. And it does ultimately treat victims as if they're sort of fodder, which I think we can see quite particularly in our current sort of era of social media, where people just want you to click on something. So the more outrageous and the more appalling and the more violent something is, it's not important, the details. The details are no longer important. What's important is the outrage. And I think that from a a journalist perspective and from a media perspective, it's one of the reasons why people have lost trust in media is because we've highlighted the outrage instead of the accuracy, whereas the media's job should really be to focus on the accuracy because without that, the story gets lost. But there is such a drive, especially these days, to kind of get the story first in particular. And I often get into, let's say, mini disagreements with my colleagues, um, particularly editors on certain online news sites where I challenge them about their policy to be first. And I say, well, your policy, I would rather, much rather that you were second, but that you got the story right. Being first kind of doesn't win anything. But from there, in their minds, being first is, you know, most important. No, there's pressure. There's pressure on, on immediacy, you know, being, being the first one out there. So let's talk about what has happened this year, because I, I did an interview this week, and the very first question I was asked was, can you give us hope? And I I looked at the interviewer and I said, you know, I'm not sure that I really can. And then I went home and I started reading your book. And suddenly I wondered whether I'd made a big mistake, sort of speaking out saying, I don't think I can really give you hope about what's happening to women in the country. And I thought, because I, like everybody else, we follow what's happening in the media. So is the situation, is it getting worse in the country for women? Or is it just because the media have been focusing on it this year? I'm not convinced that it's getting worse relative to other crimes. I think that our crime situation in general is currently getting worse for everyone. And what I mentioned, I think, at the start of the book is that we don't just have a femicide problem, we have a homicide problem. And we can't expect femicide numbers to decline if we are unable to get our homicide numbers to decline. So in fact, some of the research that I'm working on for next year, academic stuff, not book stuff, is to improve and increase our research about homicide. Because if we don't tackle our homicide problem, we're never going to be able to successfully tackle our femicide problem. The second thing is that I I do believe current, not just reporting, but social media in particular, tends to make women feel like there is a sudden spate of violence uh, or there's a, a rush of killings. And every time somebody says, you know, this week has been the worst week, I look back and I say, what do you mean? Because there are eight women who are killed every single day on average. And you've just read about three of them this week. Why do you think that this is suddenly worse just because you know about them? Also, my research into the archives indicates that as a proportion of murder in South Africa, women have been killed at very high rates for a very long time. And there's probably a lot that we don't know about fatal violence that was inflicted against women because up until the 1990s, violence against black women was so poorly documented. Um, In fact, violence against Black people or within Black communities was so poorly documented that we can't really say we have an accurate picture. 
So it's been going on for a very long time. I think like you, I'm also asked sometimes, you know, where is the hopeful part or the silver lining? And I'm not convinced that there is one. I do think, though, very strongly that we cannot pursue better strategies until we have a better understanding of what we're dealing with. So if we only use what we see on social media or we use total shutdown or we use am I next as our metric to try and understand what femicide actually is about, we're going to fail because that sort of has cherry-picked emotion and a few examples but hasn't taught us how this has functioned as a system of violence against women for generations. So we'll leave that for the last question as to what the solution is going forward. Um, what are some of the questions here we've got? Question, Tracy, your own experience proves it really can happen to, even to women who are strong and independent. Can you explain what happened to you? I think, I think very often, Nahami, you can tell me, is this true? Uh, is this right? Often the perpetrator will, will, will take you on because you're independent. I mean, isn't this all about control at the end of the day? I don't know. It's so hard for me to answer that because I was having a discussion with two colleagues, three colleagues at WITS the other day, and they were commenting on the morbid subject matter that I was researching. They also all work in violence research, but for them to research deaths was particularly violent. And I said, wow, you know, for me, it's actually easier because having to deal with victims who survived and actually encounter them as living, speaking people would be far worse because you'd have to imagine it far more. Whereas, you know, once a person is, is dead, it's kind of there's a, a certain amount of distance between you. So I quite deliberately don't work with living victims of violence because I find it traumatic. I'm not sure that I would manage it well. But because of that, I also can't really tell you what is the perpetrator's intent or motive in terms of this. And, and I think it's also to understand that Every single type of woman experiences violence. It's not just strong women. It's, no, it's, it's not just, there's not a profile of the victims. No. no. Yeah, it's, it's too everyday. It's quite horrible in that respect. Looking at murder cases reported in the news is overwhelming and one switches off. But can you remember the earliest case which you read or reported about where you realized this was a real person who died? Um, they're all real in many respects. Um, Something must what have has, sparked interest in this, though. Was there a particular case that profoundly affected you and you thought, I need to find out more? Not at this stage. I mean, for writing this book, because initially I was sort of set on trying to capture the idea of femicide, and I had to avoid individualizing it quite deliberately and specifically. And at some moments, if I would get tired or I would, wouldn't look after myself well enough, my protections would fail, and then I would get caught up in an individual case. And then it becomes overwhelming because then suddenly you reread the words on a page and you can't really imagine. I mean, there were so many cases. I mean, my, my doctoral research looked at 408 different cases of femicide. And a lot of them were really quite horrible and involved extreme levels of brutality. You know, I remember before that, though, years ago, working on a book with uh, Glynis Breitenbach, the shadow MP for justice. But obviously, Glynis is a, a former prosecutor. And I remember Glynis telling me how she, when she was first kind of a law student and sitting in on some of the trials, and I remember her telling me about one case where a woman had been sexually assaulted and she'd been beaten so badly that her jaw had broken, but the perpetrators had continued to force her to perform oral sex on them with a broken jaw. And I remember her telling me about that, and that 
sticking with me. And I've tried several times after that to actually find the case in either the kind of the, the law reference things or in a news report. And I, I still haven't found out exactly which case it is. So I remember details like that. And I can tell you bizarre trivia about what people have used as murder weapons. But I, yeah, I, I can't say that there was one. And you've described horror stories of, of, of intestines hanging out. I mean, it's just been, the level of brutality is completely overwhelming. The yeah. one sentence that also stuck out in the book for me was you said, I am no longer fearless. And that made me sad because having done all this research and actually knowing the kind of world we live in, um, and it was a story that you, the sentence came in where you were talking about the figures between India and South Africa. And in the past, you would have sort of, you know, walked down that road in India, not really being terribly concerned and saying, oh, well, I'm from South Africa. I've got this sorted. And then you said, I'm no longer fearless. And that made me very sad. I don't know if it's a reality, if it's a function of age. You know, when I went to Burma and escaped the secret police, I was in my 20s and like nothing, you know, I was untouchable. So there is a function of also being young and considering yourself invulnerable. So maybe it's I'm older, maybe I have children, I worry about things in a different way. But I would say it's fairly common amongst the other violence researchers that I know that it's not that we're fearful, we don't walk around like a little old lady clutching her purse, but we're just a lot more pragmatic about the risks. And, you know, you do lock your doors at night all the time. You don't accidentally leave your door open and think, this is lovely. So I think it's a, it's a pragmatic response. But the more I work studying violence, the, the less optimistic I become. And I'm hoping that in some way the work that I do contributes to changing that. Because um, I remember last year, after I'd finished my, my writing and submitting my thesis, I visited the UK to go and see a friend. This was kind of a post-PhD treat. It was to actually have a proper holiday for the first time in many, many, many years. And I remember being in the middle of the English countryside. In fact, I was visiting, uh, I was visiting another author there and staying overnight in a tiny little caravan in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. And the caravan didn't lock uh, from the inside. So I, had to, I was lying there at night thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm in this room that doesn't lock. I can't lock myself in here to be safe. And I had to sort of reconcile myself to the fact that I was almost certainly really, really safe. And then I said, well, you know, probably the, the biggest thing I've got to worry about now is like vampires and werewolves, because it's only my imagination that can actually harm me in this environment. And it was safe, but it was so inconceivable to me as a woman living in South Africa that there was a place that could be safe. Um, and it's, it's like this dream that you want to sort of bring back to, to the woman in South Africa. You want every woman in South Africa to be able to feel that she could walk down a street with headphones in her ears and not worry about somebody coming up behind her, that she could go to sleep at night with all the windows open and not have to listen out for noises. Imagine that. And I mean, that's kind of the gift that I suppose we work towards to see, could we make that closer to a possibility for younger women now? So what is the way forward? Because when I talk about um, violence against women, I try to do it in a sort of a calm, non-aggressive manner because we want to take men on the journey with us. We don't want to alienate anyone. And just listening to you talk now, you're so reassuring and you're so calm and you make us feel better about it. How, how do we deal with this? How are we going to change men's attitudes toward women? That's such a tough question. And Nakama, yes. just yes, still yes. thinking about it is a tough question because I think it's a question that we really do need to ask. But while you're thinking about the response to that, Tracy, 
Can I just ask you, mercifully, you are not a victim of femicide because here you are to tell the story. You nonetheless had an horrific experience. It was, albeit a long time ago, but it crept up on you. Did you expect it? Did you recognise it for what it was? And whilst we're talking about being afraid, are you? were you afraid? Clearly you were. Are you still afraid? Has it marked you for life? I'm not afraid as I sit here today, but when my book came out, which was probably about two and a half years ago, I was terrified that I was, um, you know, lighting the fire kind of thing and that I was putting myself in the middle of it all. And I remember phoning the psychologist who who assisted me through my court case and I said to him, you know, am I, am I in danger? How vulnerable am I? And I remember being very cautious and almost sort of staying indoors. But now time has passed and, and, I, and I'm no longer afraid of the of the perpetrator, former perpetrator in my own life. I mean, you know, obviously as a woman in South Africa, we we are very aware and we're very hypervigilant as we walk down the street. But but certainly I sit here and I'm, you know, it is in the past. It really is the past. And that's why I'm asking all the questions today. And I know Nancy, you wanted me to talk a little bit about my own experience, but I'm so fascinated by this book. And I feel that it's so relevant and yeah, and I just want to know how do we change all of this? Yeah, I, I just I, I can hear your reticence, Tracy. But I just want to know what do you tell other women? Because was there another way in which you could have been more prepared? I mean, do you tell? Do you explain to women that they must be vigilant and that things may all seem to be terribly calm and, and wonderful, but this can creep up little by little? Do, what word of caution do you have? And then it's back to you and Hama. I think I was in, in denial a lot because I thought it was never going to happen to me because I'd made a decision as a little girl that this would never, you know, would ever happen to me. So when it did, I think I did excuse the behavior, but but I certainly was subconsciously, um, I, I remember asking him one day, I said to him, have you ever hit a woman? And he said, oh, I've never, do. it's the only time I have ever asked a man that question. So subconsciously, something was telling me that things were not okay. As far as advice for women goes, I, I'm just very aware of women's safety. And if you feel that you're in a dangerous situation, my advice to you is, is to get out as fast as you can. Because if you think it's dangerous, then it is dangerous. Let's go back to the difficult question, Nakama. Has it given you a chance to have a think? So the question of how do we get men on board? On no, this? That part I know. I wanted to kind of, because I was actually wanting to discuss with Tracy the difference between I suppose, writing about other people and writing about your own experience of violence, because it's hard. And I mean, I, I know the feeling where it's sometimes you actually also don't feel like talking about the fact that you were a victim once, because maybe you don't feel like that today. And giving other people advice can also be a challenge. And I wanted to add to that, there's a, a homicide researcher in the UK called Jane Monkton Smith. And she's actually been developing what she calls an intimate partner homicide timeline which people can go and look up online. She's post, she posts about it on Twitter and I'm assuming on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. So she's with the University of Gloucestershire and she has this homicide timeline where she talks about the stages that happen in a relationship that are essentially warning signs to women who are at risk of extreme violence from their intimate partner. And it's such an interesting and, again, quite chilling way of going through it. I think, for example, that tools like she's developing are important in terms of recognizing that this is a problem, giving words and giving a framework to the problem. And we need those types of things when we go and talk to men, because there is this inherited perception that it's not really a problem. I mean, you know, you can say it's not really a problem. And the one thing I struggle with is how do you be nice to men? 
while you're actually explaining that, no, this is really a problem. And as Tracy said, that we're always expected to say this with a smile on our face because we don't want to antagonize our abusers. We want to bring them along with us. We want to, you know, like make men feel more comfortable. And I'm not sure how how we're going to do that because the one thing very clearly that emerges from all these years of press reports is that the way men felt in the 1970s is kind of really an echo of what men say they feel today, which is, well, they feel like they're losing their masculinity and they're threatened by women taking their jobs and the economy isn't doing so well right now. So they feel, you know, they can't really provide for women. And the, the story from the man's side hasn't changed. And all this time we've been kind of like, oh, we, we're very happy that you're listening to us talk about all this violence that you're committing against us. Um, you know, we hope that if we're, if we're a little bit nicer, maybe you'll listen more. And I, I don't know if that's, if that's the solution. I mean, I think ultimately what you also have to do is take them to court. You know, be less nice. I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure what your, what are your, I do want to ask, because Tracy, you're much more of a, a personality, a public figure. And if you're not nice to somebody, it would sort of be a little bit of a bigger story than if I was rude to somebody. And how have you managed to, you know, or what do you do when you don't feel like yeah. being nice? Yeah. I, I actually said that this week that I, I find that I, I minimize my own story so that I don't make people uncomfortable around me. But then what I also do is that I indirectly then minimize other women's stories. So for me, um, at this point, and, and especially today, um, sort of trying to find a balance between what you can talk about and what you can't talk about, because it also affects other people around you. You know, um, you know, I don't stand alone. I, I belong to a family unit. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it is it is a tricky one. But I, Tracy Saunders has just been, um, messaged us, and she says it's not. And I think it's such a lovely, powerful way to end end our discussion. It's not only the violence itself; it's the constant fear of potential violence that robs women in South Africa of their freedom. Yeah, I think, or I hope that part of what the book Femicide in South Africa is about is it should be part of a body of work that allows us to try and truly understand violence as it is, not violence as other bodies have told it is, you know, or, or the myth that media tells us violence is, or even churches have their own mythology, religious institutions protect and hide and disguise the narratives around violence. So I'm hoping that this is a book that tells us what it is, and with that kind of information allows us to see it differently. And maybe somebody else reading the book will identify solutions or you know, ideas that could challenge this and could minimize that exactly that threat of the potential violence because we all read this and we all know that we're not that far removed from possibly having been next. You escaped it, I escaped it. I have, and I'm shocked at actually how many colleagues I know who have family members who haven't escaped this. In fact, last week when the first, the 16 days started, I saw several different female colleagues on Twitter and I'm, I'm not, and friends, I'm not going to name them because it's also their own personal stories. But I literally in a handful of, in a, you know, a handful of minutes saw three different women who had lost sisters to femicide, whose sisters had been killed by their intimate partner. I mean, these are women I know. This isn't somebody I know from, like somebody I actually know, know. Yeah, it's so common, it's so prevalent, and it's frightening. Nancy, are we handing over to you? I think so. I think it's a conversation that sadly could go on all day um, without any necessarily any conclusion, but I do think airing it is absolutely the right thing. Tracy, I just want to ask, you mentioned the organisation that you're working with. Can you tell us what it is, if anybody would like to find out more? 
I've sort of launched my own organization and just trying to keep domestic violence on the agenda, you know, just to just to talk about it because I don't have the academic knowledge that's, that Nahama has. I just have my own experience. So it's not, I've, I've got to, I have my own space where I can operate. And my thing is to call women to come together and actually and talk and share their story. So it's almost like a soft healing place, the, the zone that I'm working in. But that's a, place, a space that I'm comfortable in. And I think it's a space that's also needed because mm. we it needs to be multi-pronged the way we deal with violence against women in the country. So I'm hoping to make a contribution in that way, just where we talk. And, and I realized from doing talks as well, that people come to you and they tell you their stories. So the moment you talk is when you get permission to others to tell their story. So that is where I'm, I'm at. Um, so that's why I'm so intrigued to actually get some more research from this book. And actually, it's a heavy-hitting book, but it's a it's it's an easy read. We can all understand what Nahama has written here. Indeed, so I hope that it, it does indeed, and we're completely at Woman's Own, completely with you on finding a space for women to share their story because a problem shared is a problem halved, and it can help lessen the blow if you can get it off your own chest from your own heart. Tracy, thank you very much. Tracy's own book is an extraordinarily interesting read not just for the the situation that you found yourself in but the tenacity which with you with which you hung on to right through the court cases actually awe-inspiring and uh, there you sit looking like butter wouldn't melt in your mouth but you are a woman of steel and you you were the victor <laughs> at the end bless you thank you so much Tracy. Thank you, Nancy, and thanks Nahama. to add to what nancy said is i think what's also so resonant about Tracy's book is that it starts off by linking it through to another famous femicide, well, another famous act of violence against women, which was, you know, the killing of Riva Steenkamp. And I think it's also so important to acknowledge how all of those incidents, those acts affect other women. And immediately it becomes apparent when you're talking about your own case, you're actually talking about every other woman who's experienced that type of violence. And so that's why, as much as academic research is important, telling stories and sharing those stories is essential. Because when you do that, it lets other women know not only that they can share their own stories, but they didn't imagine them, that their stories were real. And that then lets other people know that this violence, unfortunately, is common among us. But we have to talk about it. We do. We have to talk about it. And mercifully, you have written about it because your story, your book goes beyond the individual stories. I feel it should be mandatory reading and whether or not that makes it sound like something you're sort of beating people over the head with. It's not that, as Tracy says, it is a very accessible read and I think it's absolutely invaluable to see how it's grown and risen and how this demon has just escalated. And it's only by understanding it that we can look at the way forward to find a way of, of stopping it. Nahama Brody, Tracy Going, thank you very much. Nahama's book is called Femicide in South Africa. It's published by Quella. Tracy's book is called Brutal Legacy, a Memoir, and it's published by MF Books. And thank you very much to Teresa, who has given us the details of Jane, Jane Monkton-Smith, uh, which certainly sounds like somebody to follow up on. Her Twitter handle is jmonkton, Monkton, M-O-N-C-K-T-O-N, Smith, S-M-I-T-H. Thank you, one and all. And I hope that those of you who've been listening, Tracy Saunders, sort of lovely to have you interjecting there, and to all of you who've, who've been joining us. And I hope that it just it doesn't fill you with despair so much as hope that we can do this, we can do something about it. And as Tracy says, we do need to get the guys on board. Thank you very much, one and all. There'll be another book club in 2021. And who knows, but it might even be a live one. Don't hold your breath. And in the meantime, mask up. Thank you very much. 
blessings to one and all. Thank you. Hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo.